On today's episode, I'm chatting with Dario Spina. Dario is the CMO of Velocity at Viacom CBS. You're going to hear about his incredible career spanning over 20 years of Viacom and how it almost never happened in the first place. Somehow this episode covers puppies, racing cars through Times Square, and the always inspirational LeBron James. Now, let's get to the show. Dario, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, Jared. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is this is fun. It's interesting. I've been doing this podcast for a couple of years, and the last you know year of it has been really interesting. With you know, people are in their homes. Sometimes someone's in like a closet or a basement or like tucked around the corner. Uh, so where are you? Where are you calling from today? I'm calling in from my home in sunny New Jersey. Uh, I may be having to tuck myself away into a closet or different room because my boiler went out. So you may hear some drilling and, and plumbers working. And I also have two very anxious dogs in this living room that I'm talking to you from. So bear with me. Well, so I actually have a dog question for you. So we just got a puppy three weeks ago. Uh, you, what kind of dogs do you have? They're mutts. Uh, they're both rescues. So one uh, we looked up uh, is, of all things, probably a rat terrier. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other one looks like kind of a miniature collie mix. And I remember years ago uh, trying to figure out what she was, and there was this blog, dog blog site called Handsome Dogs. And so I posted her picture up there, and uh, there was this like function where you uh, ask people to guess the breed if yeah. you don't know it. And uh, I remember not getting any responses, and I'm like, you know, my dog's as handsome a dog as these other dogs. I wonder why we're not getting responses. And then this was on Tumblr, actually, back in the day. And, I, and then I remember clicking on the link more deeply. And there was like 300 responses. And the most votes was uh, a response for a, a breed named a Marquisia, mm. which sounds very regal. And it's uh, a Dutch tulip hound uh, is the definition of that breed. And I will tell you, I mean, this dog was in the pound. I don't know that... They- there are any many Dutch tulip hounds in there, but that's what she looks like. <laughs> well, we uh, we got a COVID puppy. I think puppies. Uh, it's like fifty percent of people have puppies now, and we're I'll put us in that group. That you know, when you're at home, I have two kids, and eventually, I mean, I had dogs growing up, but they were farm dogs, and that's I've learned a farm dog is much different than a house dog, and the the biggest difference is is I don't remember ever worrying about how our dogs slept or how they ate. Like, I think we had this massive, massive uh, bowl, like a horse kind of bowl, horse grain bowl. And we just filled it with half a bag of whatever dog food was on sale on with farm dog. And you didn't, and you just let it. And then it just lived. And if it got hungrier, I think it ate mice, right? It was, that's how that worked. And now I know that we were putting like pumpkin in with its food so that it has like the right constitution of its poo. Like that's a, this is my dad 
when I'm telling him about what this puppy is like, what it's like having a house puppy, he's like, I don't think that's how dogs are supposed to, aren't they supposed to just like go outside and fend for themselves? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, they're getting just as pampered as we are, I guess, right? Yeah. It's a lot like raising a baby. It's, I remember like two kids and it was the, it's the same thing. It just takes a dog two weeks to get to the point a human gets in two years. Exactly. And I, I, I think about that when we think about stories of the greatest generation and how I guess someone like myself could never survive in that generation because I know how to do nothing and maybe not tough enough. Um, and now, unfortunately, we're making our dogs that way as well. Yeah. <laughs> well, there you go. You're the CMO of Velocity at Viacom CBS, which is Viacom CBS. That's fairly recent. What is it, about a year or so that that merger happened? Yes. We're post year one of the merger currently. But you've had, I mean, you've seen Viacom through its many, you know, evolutions. Like, tell me about how you. You first started off getting into that company. Yeah, well, I, I at the time, um, I've been with the company now uh, over 20 years. And when I say that, it scares me. But uh, I was working out of my home uh, prior to joining Viacom. And uh, I was sort of like an agency of one, if you will. And my client was the New York Lottery. And I was... Uh, managing their stunts and promotions and kooky contests. Uh, and, and the New York Lottery actually got involved in long-form storytelling. So um, I was also working on television show productions with uh, Columbia TriStar uh, TV at the time. And uh, I went for a, an interview uh, like an informational interview at the time with MTV Interactive in the dot-com bubble days 1.0, I would say, again, 20 years ago or so. MTV Networks, part of Viacom, was spinning out uh, its own digital division. And at the time, they had a digital music group uh, in which they were building out uh, three sites, three music sites, MTV, VH1, and a music site uh, that they acquired at the time called sonicnet.com. And uh, sonicnet.com at the time was kind of, dare I say, uh, Pandora before Pandora. Mm. They, they uh, allowed for uh, you to customize uh, digital radio stations. But in addition to that, it was kind of also an encyclopedia for music. So you could learn about any artist and their discography and many things. So my job when I landed it at the time was uh, to be a director of kind of stunts and promotions for those sites and to come up with similarly you know, some big ideas to help drive traffic and ultimately commerce uh, for those sites. But uh, the way it got there is kind of uh, funny and interesting if, if you want to hear that story. My favorite stories are how people got hired and also if people got fired. Those are always like the most interesting parts. The first week and the last week of someone's job, I find, are the, sometimes the most interesting times. Yeah, so it was uh, uh, in the middle of the winter, I remember, and um, I... I don't know how I got to 
have this kind of informational interview. It was actually a little more than that. I didn't know that. I didn't know that there was like really a formal position. I was just meeting with uh, this person who was running sales and marketing for this MTV interactive division. And so I went to the office and it was in downtown Manhattan and it was a, it was a terrible day. I remember it was like sleeting and snowing and really awful. And uh, I was waiting in a lobby and I was waiting for the better part of an hour and no one came out to get me. There was no kind of interaction with, um, anyone representing this person that I was going to meet. Um, every once in a while, someone would pop out through the doors and ask me if, if I needed help. And I was, I would say, I'm, I'm looking for this person. And they're like, we'll check, find out where he is. And he wasn't actually in the office. And about an hour and a half later, after a couple of people said, he's, he's coming, he's just coming from the uptown office. Um, he burst, he burst in, he's like totally sopping wet. We go into this conference room and I remember him saying, dude, I'm so sorry. I, I'm an hour and a half late and I was really looking forward to meeting you. And I only have 15 minutes uh, to talk to you about this job. Not only is he an hour and a half late, but now due to this like lateness, he's got 15 minutes. So you're going to be there for two hours and you got 15 minutes of time. Basically. I got 15 minutes. And so he's he begins to tell me that there's this actual role that they're looking for and it's it's for stunts and promotions for this uh music digital team and everything that i told you about to kind of drive traffic and and the one note he gave me was he want to do those types of events the way mtv used to do them back in the 80s for cable tv hmm. and so for the folks that didn't know what MTV was doing back in the eighties, they would do these really crazy culture driving, uh, stunty events, like having Prince play your prom. They gave away John Bon Jovi's, uh, house fr from when he was a kid, his actual, the home that he grew up in. I believe John Mellencamp's had this hit song, pink houses. They gave away a pink house. So um, there were really some, and, and many others, really some great things. So they wanted to do stunty things like that for digital. And so I, I just remember uh, I was doing versions of those types of things for the New York Lottery. And uh, I was like, well, I, I have now probably 10 minutes left. And I remember looking it's like a, a dank conference room and looking in the corner of a conference room and there was like a, a setup and, and you know, those, um, it was just a rolling cart with a, a TV, but it was one of those TVs that had like a VHS, uh, cassette play, a VHS tape player embedded in the TV. Yeah. Yeah. It's the one the substitute teacher brings into class when they're going to play a movie for this. Exactly. So anyway, I, it wasn't plugged in. I was like, do you mind if I just show you what I've uh, produced recently for the New York lottery? Uh, uh, and he said, sure, go for it. And when I was plugging the thing in, I was like, oh, this has got like a 90% failure rate. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> like, so terrifying, but it actually worked. And, and so I just so happened to have a VHS tape, uh, like a sort of press reel 
of this stunt that we did with the New York Lottery. And it was around uh, the lottery partnering for the first time with like a third party entity and, it, and they partnered with NASCAR. And they put together this uh, scratch off ticket and I'll never forget it was called Race for Cash. We came up with this stunt where we were gonna have these NASCARs almost doing this faux race around Times Square. And so got about 10 NASCARs rumbling down Broadway in Times Square and doing laps, the most heavily congested part of New York City and potentially in, in all of the United States. And obviously it caused a ruckus. We got a lot of news coverage around that. Like why are, why are these NASCARs you know, taking over Manhattan, if you will? And the NASCARs are rumbling so much that it actually shook buildings in the area. And so people came spilling out of the buildings and wanted to know what was going on. So we got a lot of uh, press coverage and news co coverage, obviously, and that was the point. And I remember him asking me, he's like, dude, you shut down Times Square? And I said, well, it's not me. Of course, there's like a team of people uh, alongside me. In addition to the lottery itself um, and New York City, uh, the mayor's office, who talked to the governor's office and made it all okay to do this type of thing. So it's not that big a deal because the lottery is a state agency. And uh, there's like an aerial shot and he was like, I, don't, I still don't understand how like that all got pulled off. And we did it in, in a relatively short amount of time. And so I just showed him, you know, like you see that bald guy walking around with a walkie talkie. <laughs> in the middle of this, that's me. And I remember him turning to me and saying, dude, you're hired. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I didn't even know, I was like, for what? And he's like, well, we want, we want that. There's a, there's a role that's exactly for that. And uh, I, I remember starting that weird week between Christmas and New Year's around 20 or so years ago. And so I, uh, I did wind up uh, taking on a job that was very similar to that. It would come up with stunts and promotions for all three of those sites, uh, depending on what they needed. And MTV, VH1, and SonicNet.com. And um, after, you know, the dot-com bubble burst and there was uh, some reorganizations and changes, I decided to uh, transition over to a channel uh, within MTV networks at the time called TNN. Um, and they were the national network uh, that was a newer uh, positioning and name from its original name, which was the Nashville Network mm -hmm. um, prior to that. And uh, I would say in, in transitioning to uh, the national network or the new TNN, senior leadership um, they made a bunch of programming acquisitions and also original shows that made the original audience uh, much younger than it was and much more male. Mm. And so there were several executives within MTV networks that um, put together a, a, a plan to see if they could launch a men's entertainment network at the time. Um, and that channel ultimately became known as Spike TV. And so 
Uh, I could say that I'm the marketing guy that helped launch Spike TV. Uh, of course, with a great team of senior leadership uh, people, uh, also many people alongside me and uh, to get that going. But with, with a, a few, uh, what some folks don't know is uh, 48 hours prior to launch, we actually got a cease and desist. There is a, a lawsuit that was brought about by Spike Lee. Oh, and, uh, yeah. And so we couldn't launch as Spike TV for the better part of the summer that we were supposed to launch. And that's a whole other story that we could get into at another time, Jared. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm just fascinated by these like moments where someone's life or career or a show or anything like they they take this big wine the road. Like you, you have this interview. There's a bunch of things that probably means you shouldn't get that job. Like the guy's not there for an hour and a half. If you had something else going on at that time, you would have had to reschedule. Maybe that meeting never happens, right? So then you don't get that job. You didn't even know you were really going for a job interview to begin with. If that TV isn't in that room and you don't bring a VHS, which I think like I, I was around in the, you know, that time, I remember, I don't know if I would have brought a VHS, like the fact that you had that VHS, you only had 15 minutes, it was exactly what they were looking for. And you get that job. And that, that basically kicks off your career. And then Spike TV launches. And there's not I mean, how many chances are there in a career to launch a national, like a new national TV station, right? Because, yeah, that meeting doesn't happen. You probably go and do something else. Like, what was... I'm curious what the the 10-year-old version of you thought that they were going to do with their life, right? Like, I, I think of what I wanted to do when I was a kid, and maybe I wanted to be in marketing, but I think I, it was equal with being an astronaut. Like, it was one of those two, was probably. Like, what did you want to be when you were 10 years old? I, yeah, I, I would say similarly. I think it, it probably was... Eddie Van Halen, <laughs> and is that like some kind of rock god guitarist? And I would say I I was somewhat directionless even through college, and uh, it took and and a lot of people who are close to me know this story. I I, I went to a um, like a finance and sort of accounting driven type of university in downtown Manhattan called Pace University at the time. And I, I, I thought I was sort of intrigued with the notion of, of being in international finance, but I had no idea what that really was. It just sounded, it had some kind of sex appeal to me for some reason. And, uh, and nothing sexier than international finance. <laughs> I, at the time, it sounded very, I, I romanticized it in some way. And so, um, but I, I would just say there was early in, in, uh, in my college life, I had a really hard time actually with the finance and accounting courses. I was really struggling with it. And um, I had this English comp class and I, re I remember so vividly my professor pulling me aside and she said, you know, you're a really good writer and uh, I actually think you should change your major. And I was such an obnoxious, I guess, 
18 or 19 year old at the time. I was, in, I, I may have said this, or at least in my mind, I was like, look, uh, I, I really, no offense. I just don't want to be a college professor. Mm. And thank God she didn't take offense to that. And she said, I, I think you could do whatever you want if you could convey your ideas really well. Hmm. And uh, I listened to her finally. And um, you know, she altered the course of my life. Essentially, I graduated in a finance school with a creative writing major, hmm. actually, and an advertising minor. I knew I, I, I wanted to do something with writing or, or creative in commerce. So, um, uh, and then Jared, I went to go find her 28 years later and that's a, that's, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> well, it's, that's interesting too, right? You, you're going to go into international finance and then, you know, some teacher professor says, yeah, like, why don't you try this creative writing thing? And I would, I mean, MTV doing stunts at MTV right around the dot com boom, that must have been a fun, like a cool job to tell your friends about because MTV's at its peak, right? Right around, or it's just super popular. And you're like getting to mix and mingle with like what's going on in, in culture. I worked in, in stunts or experiential, it was called. I worked for an experiential marketing agency, met my wife there. She was the head of, a, of an experiential. I have a ton of respect for anyone that does anything related to stunts or promotions because the number of variables the likelihood of things going wrong like you take that the reason that that uh your eventual boss was probably so impressed with that Times square thing is because there's a million things that should go wrong in that situation you're driving like these super fast cars around a highly populated center uh beyond just trying to get it shut down like there's a million things that can go wrong you you move out of stunts in a way, like, you know, as you started going more into maybe marketing roles, do you think that that, that time though has built up some resilience in you? But what do you think that that experience has given you now as a CMO that, that maybe you wouldn't have got otherwise? Uh, it really kind of flexes your resourcefulness muscle. Uh, because to your point, there's uh, so many things that could derail uh, the making of something experiential, um, even as little as like forgetting to get the right permit for something. Yeah. Uh, and then always a client or decision maker getting cold feet last minute or just also going through the creative process and seeing and hearing and feeling things that just don't add up correctly and the ability to kind of figure it out uh collaborate properly uh experience helps you with seeing some things um that may happen and and you know, be able to adjust for that. But many things you don't see, even to this day, and you have to kind of problem solve on the fly. And that's the uh, terror and beauty in it, if you will. And I think it's a, a, a discipline in an area that keeps you sharp. 
Yeah, the, uh, the, the, the you say kind of the the beauty and the terror of it uh, because you're almost like continuously looking for what can go wrong. They say this about um, chess masters where because they spend so much time looking seven moves ahead, if they stop playing chess, a lot of times they go like borderline crazy because they're so used to trying to predict the future and what will happen seven moves ahead that they can never like relax in the present. And I know my wife and I talk about how being an experiential means that a lot of times you're looking for every possible thing that could go wrong. But at the same time, you build up this like ideation muscle uh, because with stunts and events, you're always trying to come up with something that's never been done before, which means you're constantly pitching these ideas that are really crazy. Uh, and, you know, there is nothing else other than the pitch. Like you don't, it's not like media where you own inventory. Uh, everyone wants something new. Everyone wants something that hasn't been done before. And this thing is usually only going to happen once. So you're pitching like thousands of ideas all the time. I don't know if that has helped you. Like if you see any similarities now that you have some folks on branded content where, where a lot of it comes into like this ideation a little bit more, it's a little bit more about the idea than it is sometimes about, let's say, the media inventory. Yeah, I, I think it's maybe more than that. Uh, I'd like to think it's mostly about the idea. Uh, it's not entirely about the idea, to be brutally honest, because uh, you do have to compartmentalize the idea into dare I say, executional lanes in media and sort of project out how this story will play out in proper platforms. But I will say, you know, with, with the team that's alongside me and, and with me, I am uh, really marvel at how much better a lot of them are than I am at the discipline. Like being able to, you know, properly project what the story um, could be on social media during and after the physical experience, uh, what it could be in terms of uh, press uh, response to X stunt or experience, uh, what it could be with regard to the consumer experience at the experience and what the consumer experience uh, will be in witnessing it for the folks who aren't there um, and are uh, consuming it in a different way, whether it be on TV or digital or social media. And a lot of times I'm like, wow, I, I don't even know if I'm really suited for this. <laughs> These people are really <laughs> so much better than me. And that's what it's about really is working with people who probably are better than you at many things and, and harnessing that power in a, in a really unique and uh, interesting way. And what do you think the biggest, so you, you know, you've been there for 20 years, but it's not the same as working at like one company because you're with these different brands and you're doing different disciplines within it. But during your time, what has been the biggest change you've seen, fundamental change that has happened in, in marketing or media throughout that time? Because I imagine there's been like tons of big changes going from, you know, dot com boom up until today. Is there is there something you think that has been the biggest change in that space? Oh, yeah. So I will say 
for the for the first kind of ten years of of my life at Viacom, now Viacom CBS, it, uh, I had uh, consumer facing roles. So you know, for for uh, Spike TV, for instance, I was the head of marketing, and that included consumer marketing. Uh, but in addition to that, it was integrated marketing and or branded content. And so I had a Madison Avenue facing part of my role as well in coming up with branded content solutions and sponsorship solutions and integration opportunities for clients, for advertising clients. Uh, so you saw several different scopes of marketing, if you will, B2B and B2C and B2B2C if you will, on the branded content stuff. But I would say definitely uh, over the last dozen or so years ago, the advent and rise and power of social media has been unquestionably the, the biggest disruptor uh, for everything, for, for media, for our lives, for government elections, if you will. And, and so I think that that's been the greatest change uh, I've seen in the marketing space, certainly uh, in the entertainment space, certainly uh, in how brands communicate with consumers, certainly social media is really allowed, as many people say, for the democratization of content creation. Uh, that used to be that power was held by a select few people or entertainment companies. Uh, and now uh, it allows for individuals and brands really to become publishers for themselves, unlike ever before. The social media thing, it's really interesting because yeah, it had this huge effect on media and marketing, but like this week, uh, I don't know if you saw what, you know, the Reddit groups of Wall Street bets, you know, they, there's these groups of people that are picking stocks uh, that have been shorted by these big, you know, financial institutions and, and brokers. I think they picked, uh, GameStop is one of them, and AMC, yeah. like the theater chain, and Nokia and BlackBerry, like all of these like really kind of depressed stocks that people thought were going to do poorly, and then just started saying, hey, let's all buy this. And I think this is unprecedented what's happening. I mean, GameStop shot up 1,500%, not based on any fundamentals. I mean, we're in the middle of a pandemic, and the theaters aren't really open. I mean, this is really interesting because it ties in really closely to you know, Paramount and, and Viacom as well. Uh, and then today they just dropped off of a cliff because Robinhood, one of the trading apps, wasn't allowing the buying. So it's, and that's really, it's just social media has created this ability for not even individuals to just be like a producer themselves, but for them to get together and in a way become more powerful than these really large institutions, whether that's a media company or a, a investment firm. Um, and I'm curious how it's had an effect on Viacom, CBS, as far as you have all these people that are individually producing content. Does that, have you seen that that makes these really large media companies less relevant or more relevant, or is it just different? I, I would say uh, probably just different. Look, it, it placed a lot of challenges uh, for many of us uh, in the entertainment business and individuals to basically learn a new language, if you will, and determine what we say, what we make, how we say things to consumers, 
uh, it really also opened up kind of a two-way street dialogue from a one-way street. It used to be mm -hmm. essentially big media companies or brands kind of spewing down content or messaging uh, to the masses. And now there's almost a very fluid and open dialogue uh, between consumers and brands and, and creators. And that makes it uh, very complex. But I think at the same time, there's also you know, a, a consumer want and need for great content. And I, I think the consumption of that content and that messaging is at probably its highest level in history uh, because the distribution outlets for content are at the highest point in history as well. So it's, it's sort of like distribution and, and consumer demand are meeting at a very high point right now, but it's also become more complex than ever with all of these connection points being fired up, obviously. Well, yeah, I imagine like when you kind of first started doing branded content, it was at least the distribution was pretty straightforward. It was probably a TV station and uh, there was some episode of some program and then you'd integrate the brand with it. And that was it. It was this distribution was pretty straightforward. Now I imagine you have to figure out, okay, if we're going to do something with some brand, it's what's it going to look like on Instagram? And then what is it going to look like on TV, on linear versus streaming versus everything else? Like the iterations of it have to be quite a bit more than, hey, this is just going to be, you know, 30 seconds sliced in between a couple of our programs. Yeah, it's exactly right. And that's where it's, that's where the kind of efficacy of the idea really needs to hold true because ultimately you are going to have to program to the platform. And so the way that you could execute, let's say a campaign level idea has to be constantly fine tuned because you may be executing just an on the ground experience. Um, or you may be executing that uh, plus a linear piece of creative plus several other pieces of creative that are distributed on social media in long form and short form. How you're telling that story becomes potentially very complex just based on how you're distributing that story. And you need to be really cognizant of that on the onset of the project. It'll be interesting to see what happens with a lot of these, you know, ad-free. Uh, Paramount Plus it just launched, right? Or is in the midst of a huge launch right now. It's about to launch, yes. So is it is it ad-supported or ad-free? I'm not sure I could uh, answer that question at this moment in time. <laughs> it sounds good. Well, <laughs> well, regardless, like the thing that does flow across all these platforms, whether it's Facebook or streaming or anything else, is that the content will always be on there. Like you, if you put a great video, it doesn't matter if it's sponsored or not sponsored, you put this video on Facebook or Instagram and it goes on there. You're not limited by what uh, ad formats are available, right? Because that was the thing with display early on, like banner ads early on is they were great because they covered the internet, but then social media just didn't have banner ads. So you couldn't use that format there. You had to use sponsored posts, et cetera. Uh, I'm curious if with all of this streaming, do you think branded content will be one of the ways 
that you'll be able to have brands involved like this integrated does it become more important when you move to even if it's not ad free it's it's ad light in a lot of ways how are you guys talking about what branded content may look like in the future with streaming well i i do think i guess the the quick answer is yes i think that there's going to be a want and a need and a demand for uh brands to embark on branded content campaigns in streaming. Uh, I think only because ultimately uh, there's always a want and a need to be able to tell your story, not just commercially, but potentially editorially and advertorially. And so I think that that the notion that you could just get your message across only by way of a commercial message. Well, that's, you know, essentially that's been debunked uh, because so many brands are publishing for themselves or partnering with the likes of us, for instance, to help co-create, you know, there's the word co-create content with them. And it just means that there's a, a want and a need to tell the story in a slightly different way than solely in uh, these kind of quarantine paid media areas, if you will. So with that, I mean, you're telling these you know, interesting stories, working with brands. I know uh, previously you'd mentioned to me that you guys are, are putting a big focus on like multicultural creative and marketing. What is that? What does that entail and why is it a focus? Well, I think it's a focus because, quite frankly, um, it is reflecting what uh, America is. And I think that media may not be fully caught up to looking like what America really looks like and and sounding like what America really looks like. But I think certainly we have to educate ourselves. We have to ramp up and recognize that we need to reflect uh, what America is about right now and how diverse a country it really is, um, and also provide for proper representation of uh, people of color and, and diverse voices, both on the screen and behind the screen. And that's editorial, and you have to do it commercially and advertorially as well. And I think that the way to do that is, at least what we're trying to do is, educate our teams to become much more fluid in what diversity and inclusion really means. Uh, But then also working with um, internal and external creatives and marketing leaders, obviously that are diverse and also in embarking on cultural intelligence studies to also help inform us and and uh, drive proper ideation by way of custom insights that have a finger on the pulse of, of, of these audiences, obviously. It, what's interesting is there's always been this idea of more like multicultural marketing, but it was always about targeting. It was like, hey, there's, you know, groups of people out there that are, you know, have different you know, whatever cultural or or views or they're in different regions, whatever it is. And it was always about, okay, you can target these groups. What you're saying that's really interesting is, is that maybe you guys are just saying like, Hey, this isn't just about, you know, reaching these people through media. 
it's about like let's let's reflect the diversity of the country uh, in like the teams that are creating this content, right? That are you know working in the studio, that are a part of the brand programs. Uh, and I don't think that's something like in my career, it's not something that has been discussed as as much. And it's probably hurt the industry really bad too, but it's also just hurt a lot of uh, people that not being included in it. So I think that's like great that you, the way that you guys are looking at it. Do you see, are there other companies that, that inspire you that have been doing a good job of this so far? I would, I would say that there is, I was just thinking about this. There's a, there's a person that really inspires me uh, in this area and uh, that person's name is LeBron James. And I, I think the, the reason, I would say not only in this area, just like in, just inspiring me as a human being and, and much more than he being a superstar athlete. But I, I was thinking about him. And, and, and so he's someone that's been in the public eye since he was like 17 years mm -hmm. old. And he's a committed champion. Like he's always on his A game. He's so strong. He's been playing basketball at the highest level for 20 years. And even how does, how does he do it? Right. So I, I then went down this kind of rabbit hole. I, I, I saw he puts out these workout videos that are insane. Right. And from what I heard, he works even harder in the off season than during the season. So on top of him being committed to his craft and, and being a, an athlete, obviously, he's also an activist. Uh, he's an entrepreneur. From what I could see, he's a committed father. He, he created a whole school in his home state. Uh, I, several months ago, without really taking too much note to this, I actually did a meditation listening to him on, on mm. Calm. Yeah, Calm. Yeah. So I think he's, he's like an awesome human being. He's continually using his persona, his celebrity, his brand, uh, and his, his influence to move people to a better place for, for social good. And, and I used to just think about him as an athlete and the immense amount of pressure he's under year, year after year to win a championship with different teams, mind you, mm -hmm. and how he continually kind of almost eats up that pressure and delivers. And that would be enough, right, to just deliver at a high level as an athlete, but he's doing so much more. So I would say in the multicultural space. He's a person uh, that's really doing it well because he's using every tool in his toolkit for social good. Well, and it, it probably makes sense that like companies aren't really things. Like even if you think of Biocom CBS, I mean, it's sure it's a, an entity, a corporate entity, but there's just people inside of it. I, I like this theme that I'm hearing from you around you know, you have a team, they come up with ideas. Viacom as a company will continue to evolve and, and have different products and offerings, but it comes down to this like group of people that are making a difference. Uh, 
the same way LeBron is a person, like every, anything he touches uh, changes because of the way that he's driven to it. It doesn't matter if it's a, you know, he, he switches basketball teams and that team changes, right? He is, you know, decides that he's going to lend his voice to meditation and it changes, you know, the audience that's maybe gets into meditation even, right? Because he's got this, you know, following. I like this idea of, of following people. Uh, what do you think is, uh, and this is a really kind of hard question, but I, you have enough experience in, you know, the evolution of media and marketing. Like, where are we, where are we headed directionally in media? What do you think the next big change is going to be? I, I think that right now, I think change is happening now in terms of next big change. And that is, it, it's, it, it's even happening with Viacom CBS in a way that I think, I do like the shift that companies are really making now and, and probably have been over the last couple of years to a certain extent. There is this expectation, at least that we've studied within a Velocity, with younger audiences that there is a high expectations from consumers of brands. They want brands to become better global citizens. And I think brands see that, and there is this term called cause marketing, but it is real. Um, it, it is about brands kind of stepping off of the sidelines and using their, their power, if you will, in interesting ways to help make this planet a better place. Many brands are committing to be greener and lower their footprint in the environment. And they're also taking political stands, uh, which you would not have seen 20 years ago, quite frankly. Um, and they're being much more bold and not playing right down the center of the political aisle, if you will. They're getting behind certain causes and, and reflecting, I guess, their brand persona in that way by way of really being public with what causes they're committing to in addition to to opening up the hood if you will and and showing consumers even what their practices are internally and i would say for me uh, as maybe as small-minded as it sounds like 20 years ago i didn't necessarily care what a what a brand's raw materials were coming from I, I probably didn't care what pro-social affiliation they had or what charitable cause they were giving to. And I certainly didn't know or maybe care about what their HR practices were. But I would say now uh, it's really important. And I, I now care, just so you know, Jared, <laughs> I do care about that stuff. Uh, but what's really important is Many consumers care, particularly younger consumers, and they're making their personal opinions uh, be heard about that. They're purchasing decisions being um, heard um, and also just liking or following brands based on uh, those brands' choices. So I think that that shift is more than a shift now. It's almost necessary. We, we like to say in, in, in Velocity, based on one of our cultural intelligence studies, that 
uh, brands are much more like people and people are acting more like brands. And I would say that that's unique uh, in this day and age, much more, you know, many more instances of that, even on a daily basis than ever before. I like that. I, I, I can get behind that idea. Um, and it, it, one thing, it makes me happy that you, you have this viewpoint on it. I think, you know, Velocity and Viacom CBS and the, the team is in good hands with that type of vision. And I'm, I'm glad that you didn't go into international finance. I mean, I'm sure you would have been great at international finance, but we were, I would have been. A <laughs> we probably wouldn't have been doing well. You'd be if you were in international finance, maybe you would be uh, sweating bricks right now with uh, what's happening in like the stock market and everything. So uh, I'd love to have you on the show. I appreciate you spending some time talking to me about not just Viacom CBS, but how it all how it all started. And uh, and I, I'm looking forward to seeing what you're doing next. We'll keep an eye on it. Well, thank you, Jared. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for tuning into the Science of Storytelling. Don't forget to leave us a comment. We love hearing from you. We have a ton more episodes coming up this season with some absolutely amazing guests. So make sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss a single one. See you next time.